have seen the movie Knocked Up? Ah, we aren't making it a hit. Okay, well then for most everybody, you may have read about the plot, but I'll give you give us a plot summary. Knocked Up is a Gen X comedy from a male point of view, written and directed by Judd Apatow, whose first film was The 40-Year-Old Virgin. And we have a slide of the main characters. Ben Stone is a 23-year-old Jewish-Canadian slacker and an illegal immigrant in Los Angeles. Allison Scott is a beautiful, responsible young woman who's working for E-Television Network. We would assume that she's ambitious as well. Um, Allison has just been promoted from off-screen to on-screen. Um, Debbie and her husband Pete. Debbie is Allison's older sister. Pete is Debbie's husband. So Ben lives in a beat-up old house with four buddies. They seem to spend most of their time smoking marijuana and figuring out ways to do so with more intensity, um, and watching nude and sex scenes on um, because they're trying to make a website where you could click in however many nude scenes someone you want to see has had. So that's how they spend their time. Um, none of them seem to have actual paying jobs, and it's mentioned at one point that uh, Ben has about $900 left, period. That's all his resources. Um, Seth Rogen, who played Ben, and is a Jewish Canadian, but not illegal, said, man, we are making a seriously demented romantic comedy. Yeah, and I think he's right. It had some dimension to it. Dimension, dementia. Um, Allison lives in a garage apartment at her sister and brother-in-law's house in a clearly very affluent neighborhood. Um, Debbie and her husband Pete have two little girls. Um, Pete is often not there, says he's working. And Debbie um, seems to be most of the time um, being at home taking care of her daughters. So this plot is its a simple plot. It seemed kind of improbable to me. And I'll tell you where I think it was improbable. Allison and Debbie go out to a club to um, celebrate Allison's promotion. And they're very happy because it's one of those big city clubs where there's a long line and the bouncer makes decisions about who can get in and who can't. And they walk right to the head of the line and he lets them in. While they're there, Debbie gets a call. Her babysitter has to go home and Pete's not home. So Debbie leaves, but Allison decides to stay. She and Ben meet, and she takes Ben home for the night, for sexual activity. And here's what I think is the first pretty darn unlikely element. Why? Why would this beautiful, ambitious, successful young woman choose this slacker who is a little chubby and is clearly very socially awkward. Uh, no. But it's necessary for the plot because in a few weeks, Allison discovers that she's pregnant, and part of the point of making the movie was they wanted to make a movie with a couple that you would say, there is no way, no way these two people should be having a baby together. And indeed, you say that don't you, the couple of people who saw the movie, yeah. But anyway, the second unlikely element to me is that 
Ellison doesn't even seem to consider any other pregnancy options but having and keeping this child. Now, she works in a narcissistic, appearance-oriented, extremely competitive, and you can see from the film, deceptive industry. Having a baby is putting her career at some threat. Now, she might make this choice, but I would think a more truthful movie, a more probable movie, would show her struggling with a choice more than this movie does, I think. But Allison finds Ben's number and calls him to tell him. It doesn't seem like she'd really need Ben for anything, but it's the right thing to do, and she wants to be responsible and do the right thing. So she calls him, and it turns out that Ben wants to do the right thing, too. He does want to be responsible, and the knowledge that um, Allison is going to have a baby um, pushes him eventually into greater maturity. He gets his own apartment. He cuts down on the marijuana. I'm not sure if he's actually stopped. Um, and he gets a job, a real job with a paycheck and presumably some benefits. And the end of the movie, Allison and Ben are shown living together in his apartment and with their baby daughter. It's also not clear if Ben has resolved his immigration status, but he is working and has his own apartment. An important secondary plot in the movie is that of Debbie and Pete. Debbie and Pete are quite distanced from each other. Pete seems depressed and Debbie is anxious. She also seems very status, very appearance oriented. They seem to be in the movie to show that having children doesn't solve relationship problems, as I think anyone who's had children or maybe even been a child knows. Debbie thinks Pete's having an affair, but he isn't. He's just lying to her so he can go out and meet his buddies and play fantasy baseball. When um, Debbie plays the spy and follows him and finds out what she's doing. She says, that's just mean. You're just mean. And they are quite mean to that. They're both quite mean to each other, and they don't really seem to have any intimacy. Allison says Debbie and Pete don't seem right for each other, but I think, how would they know? They don't talk to each other enough to know if they're right for each other. So, Pete says, you have a kid and all your dreams go out the window. The hardest time in a marriage is when you have very young children, babies, but I think Pete puts it a little too intensely. I found it interesting that some of Pete and Debbie's dialogue, the mean stuff, was lifted nearly verbatim from Judd Apatow's marriage. His wife, by the way, plays Debbie, and the daughters are Apatow's and Leslie's own daughters. So it's clear that he's familiar with the mean stuff. Apatow says, the movie has a happy ending, but you leave thinking the couple could break up in three days. It's my guess that even though he's been married for 10 years, that 
that may be the way Apatow experiences relationships, that in fact they could break up in three days. Something else I saw in the movie was that both Ben and Allison try to get help from their parents. They, they each have a, looks like a lunch, with Allison with her mother and Ben with his father, and neither parent is any help whatsoever. And they're not seen again in the movie. They basically seem to have abandoned their kids and not been particularly helpful in their lives at all. So I found several themes in this movie. And I will say that to me, almost all of them are unhealthy and not true. But some of them may be a little bit more true for Gen X. So here's the themes I saw. First of all, women are more responsible than men. Secondly, men need women to grow up, and they're not likely to grow up at all if they don't have women and children. So therefore, you can't really trust men. But women are demanding and bitchy, so therefore, you really can't trust women. You never know what it is they really want from you. Your tribe may be idiots, Ben's friends, but they will stick by you. And after all, there isn't really anyone else who can help you because you can't really trust parents or professional doctors. You're on your own. And finally, having children will change you. So those are the themes. Now, these themes are presented in a comedic way. There are laughs. There's one lesson that seemed clear to me from the film, and that is be careful who you have sex with. And not only because you might get pregnant, and not only because there are diseases, but also if you have sex more than once with a partner, you are likely to become attached to that partner. That's how our biochemistry works. Now, that biochemistry doesn't last forever, or we wouldn't have divorces. It's a biochemistry that can be very short-lived, and about the longest that initial falling in love chemistry lasts is, the scientists say, about three years. And and so that initial falling in love chemistry is not enough. It's not sufficient. It's fun. It's not enough to have a foundation for a lasting good relationship. I'm not sure that that's the message that um, the filmmakers wanted people to get from the movie, but I saw that one. So it's clear that I am not a Gen Xer. I can't deny it. I'm a boomer just a matter of accident of birth. Um, And I found the movie mostly sad. These people, they all were hurting. Everybody was hurting, and they were hurting each other. Apatow said, I love my kids, and I'm trying to show them that the conflicts you have in relationships are worth it because of them. This film has really been all about trying to send them a valentine. But it didn't feel like that to me. Epitaph doesn't really seem to like any of the characters in the movie, and he doesn't show any healthy relationship patterns. Now, he doesn't look down on the characters, but he doesn't really seem to like them either. And I, I wondered, and this is from a line in the movie, I wondered maybe Epitaph doesn't like himself very much, and he said that this line was a feeling that he had himself. He has Pete saying to Ben, Do you ever wonder how anybody could even like you? The biggest problem in this marriage is that she wants me. She wants me around. 
So everybody's hurting, hurting other people, and I say, some valentine. But I really don't mean to pick on Judd Apatow. I don't even know him. What I know about him I found in an article from the New York Times Magazine, May 27, 2007, called Judd Apatow's Family Values. It's interesting. I think he's really writing from his own life experiences. And the despair in the movie is his, and the hope in the movie is his. You know, stories are almost always as much about the storyteller as they are about the story itself. And Apatow's childhood life experience is a lot like many Gen Xers. It's an unfortunately common experience. He's 39. He was born in 1968. And the divorce rate, as probably we all know, in the late 20th century was as high as it has ever been. Apatow's parents divorced when he was in about eighth grade. And his family really, really split up. His older brother moved to their grandparents' home in California. His sister lived with their mother on Long Island. And Judd lived with his dad and visited his mother on the weekends. He knows how to make jokes. And he says, My way of dealing with the world has always been to make fun of it and observe it, but not take part in it. I don't think he's seen very many healthy relationships. And I'd like you to think for a minute, and I'm not asking you about your own marriage, but will you raise your hand if you have seen someone else's marriage that's healthy enough, looked happy enough, that you would like to model yourself or you'd like your relationship to be like that? Just raise your hand if you've seen that. So it looks like maybe half, maybe a little bit more than half good. Because... I I often would ask, when I was doing therapy and had marriage counseling, I'd ask couples that, and a lot of them had no models. And I think that may be true for Apatow. He was always small for his age, and he made fun of himself before others could. He felt geeky. He has anxiety attacks now as an adult. And he said, I had that kid's feeling that no one would protect me. And so Ben and Allison and Debbie, we don't really know about Pete, really don't seem to have anyone who would help comfort or protect them. Stephen Roderick wrote the article that I mentioned, and he says that in each of Apatow's films, the hero is nearly led astray by buddies who tempt with all kinds of strange things. But by the end, Apatow exposes his friends as well-meaning but comically pathetic and steers his men toward doing the right thing. And there's his hope. Apatow has hope in doing the right thing, has hope in having children and caring for his own children. None of these characters seem to have anything meaningful or purposeful in their lives except themselves. And they don't seem to have any real community, except, of course, for Ben's slacker buddy tribe. There's no mention of a spiritual aspect to life at all. And, in fact, all their behaviors tend toward the addictive. 
They are filling emptiness with drugs, working too much, buying expensive things, trying to look good. They focus on the external and the superficial. They seem to be trying to fill their God-shaped holes with stuff or just with numbing out. Again, they have no one to trust, no one to turn to. Still, the baby gives them hope and focus. There's a possibility of change. And having children does change us, doesn't it, those who are parents? But children don't by themselves make us grow up. These couples, in order to really make that hope come alive, they need to decide. They need to decide to learn to grow. And I think they really need help. I do think there's hope. And I think there's hope for Judd Apatow and his family. And I think that he is, in fact, finding help in his real life. What gives you hope? What gives you meaning and purpose? Something that makes you feel okay to get out of bed. So I wondered, how would the Wellsprings community be helpful to Ben and Allison, Debbie and Pete, or even Judd and Leslie? How would we welcome them? What would we want to say to them or What would we want them to know? So I'm going to tell you what I would want them to know. I want to say, Pete, Debbie, Allison, Ben, life is precious. Life is fragile. And it's short. We are so vulnerable. So stop being so closed off and defensive. Stop hurting each other. Be awake and alive and enjoy this precious gift that we have while we have it. Let yourself really love and tell your people that you love them. I feel really especially strongly about this this morning because this week an acquaintance of mine was murdered. The young African-American man, just 32 years old, Cornelius Lockhart, worked for the seminary that I go to in January in Chicago, Meadville Lombard. He had a two-year-old daughter. He was a gentle, calm, quiet, loving man. Cornelius went to a neighborhood store, and a fight broke out. He tried to be helpful. He tried to calm the situation, and he was stabbed to death. And I'm bringing it up because, well, it's funny, you know, I I seem to be talking about loss this summer, this beautiful summer. But loss can make us really attend to really being alive. And I'm glad I knew Cornelius, however little, and it was pretty little. I probably had... Mm, fewer than half a dozen conversations with him. But I'm glad that I talked to him. And I'm glad that I said thank you to him for his work. I know his family will mourn a long time. His little girl will never really know him. But I also believe that her life will be better because he really loved her while he was here. And I know that he did. He always had new pictures to show you. And this week I've been touched and saddened by knowing that this man was murdered. 
he wasn't a close friend. As I said, I only knew him a little. But knowing someone and knowing someone you know who's good and young and full of promise to be murdered, it makes a difference knowing who that person is. And it really wants me to say to Apatow's characters, wake up, get over it, grow up. It's not all about you. It's not. Please, be part of the human community. We are all deeply connected to one another. And I would want them to know that they really, they really can trust other people. And it isn't everybody. Of course it's not everybody. But I would hope they could trust the people that they live with, that they say they love. I would want them to know that they could get help from other people and it's okay to ask for and to receive help. I want them to know that it's good to really talk to your partner, to be honest with your partner, to be genuinely emotionally intimate. Don't, please, don't waste your time, your life, your energy lying to yourself, lying to your partner or your family, cursing at your family, calling them names. Please don't. Don't waste your time being defensive. We don't have enough time. We never know how much time we have. And I want them and us to know and to experience that they and we are worthwhile and likable. We have gifts. They have gifts to offer the world. And it isn't narcissistic to like yourself and to take care of yourself. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be bigger than life. And you don't have to be the best at anything. Anything. Even Venus Williams, who won at Wimbledon, also loses. Try to stop comparing yourself to other people. May we experience love and joy and know that there is a spiritual connection that is available to everyone, always. But most of all, most of all, I would want them and us to experience gratitude. Attending to gratitude and yes, gratitude in the face of loss. Attending to gratitude awakens us. Life is a gift, and we are owed nothing. We are entitled to nothing, not even tomorrow. But the beauty and the abundance of the world, of this summer, hot summer day, it's a gift. The love we receive is a gift. We can attend to it, and we can express our gratitude. Brothers, David Stondelrast is a Benedictine monk, and he wrote a book called Gratefulness, The Heart of the Matter. He says, gratefulness is the inner gesture of giving meaning to our life by receiving life as a gift. Thanksgiving comes from the heart where we are rooted in universal belonging. You, we can practice gratitude daily just by paying attention, just by making note of what you are thankful for, letting ourselves really feel and experience that gratitude, and also by taking the time to thank people in our lives. Right now, will you take just a moment and think of all the good things you have in your life this morning? I know some of them, from my point of view, we are all healthy enough, 
safe enough to be here. We are all alive. We can move. We can learn. We can speak and sing in our various abilities. We can love and we can rejoice. And we can grieve. Here at Wellsprings, we are building a community to be thankful for, a community where we're learning to listen to each other deeply and to care for each other. So, I'm going to ask you if together we can say thank you. Will you say thank you? Thank you. And please, just remember to thank all those people in your life. And I want to say again, thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of Wellsprings again, your first time or as many times as we've been meeting. So let your light shine. The world needs our gratitude, our love, our compassion, and our service. May we all be awake and alive. May you live in blessing. Will you join in prayer? God of our heart's deepest yearning, we are thankful for this precious gift of life. We want to make the most of it. Help us to attend. Help us to know how each of us can make the most. And help us to also celebrate and rejoice in our lives, in the world, and on this day. May it be so. Amen.